Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Welcome back to the Virtual Word Rounds. Uh, today, Lauren is uh, back again on our podcast. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Serge. Thanks for having me back. Now, I must say, Lauren, that our diverticulitis episodes have been very, very popular. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear. Most of the, most of the credit goes to you. Well, I've done my reading on this one, so let's hope that it's up to scratch. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot to cover, uh, so let's, let's dive into it. Sounds good. Yeah, so now you've got a patient with diverticulitis, and we are going to start talking about emergency uh, management first, okay? And the way I think about uh, managing a patient with diverticulitis or any patient that potentially is surgical is I think about um, non-interventional arm, or non-surgical arm, and then I'll think about surgical arm, all right? And in this particular case, in diverticular disease, in, in diverticulitis patients that present to our hospitals, we have a very um, useful classification to help us. We sure do. I was quite overwhelmed by this classification to start off with, so it is a little bit daunting. However, breaking it down simply, we start off, and it's, sorry, this is called the Hinchy, the modified Hinchy classification of diabetes. That's right, that's right. Yep, and yep. tell us about it, yep. Yep, so this is all done based off our CT findings. So last time we talked about the patient comes in and the gold standard imaging is CT. So based off of these findings, we can slot a patient into um, a few different stages. So I'll go through them briefly. Stage zero, um, or just the, the most basic, is just inflammation. It's within the inflammation category. Um, and it pretty much just means that the colonic diverticular may or may not be found just with some thickening adjacent to them. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And then 1A, which is still within our inflammation sort of category, is when you have diverticular with the thickening of the adjacent colon and some inflammation of the pericolic fat. Is that right, Serge? It's, it's a di difference between just inflammation of the colon itself and the next stage, stage 1A, which is pericolonic phlegmon, is maybe when you've got a micro perforation into the adjacent fat or into the mesenteric fat. So it's not enough to cause a collection like an abscess, but you do get a, a much more significant inflammation and not just inflammation of that segment of colon, you get inflammation of the fat around the colon. And that leads quite nicely onto our stages of 1B and 2 because this is our abscess. So 1B being a pericolic abscess, so right next, kind of localised within that area. And stage 2 being an abscess that is distant to the primary infection site. Yeah, now that is a very important uh, distinction. So uh, one, one B and two, they 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 sound very similar. It's it's an abscess, but one, but they're in two different categories, and that is because an abscess that is localized to the area of perforation is usually we able to treat with antibiotics. It's something that you've got a diverticulum that has popped. It expelled a little bit of purulent or fecal tissue into the adjacent fat, and then it's sealed off. 
All right. Now, a distant abscess is a large enough in volume to have collected into the pelvis to form that pelvic abscess. So then our last two categories, so stage three and stage four, is when we have the perforation. Now, I'm assuming that this is in comparison a large perforation, not the micro perforation you were talking about before. Something that continuously that stays open, something that doesn't just doesn't just seal by itself. Yes. Okay. So stage three being that we have this perforation, which has caused a pneumoperitoneum, so free air under the diaphragm, which I know that we can find that in our um, erect chest x-ray and we see that sort of bubble underneath the diaphragm. But is that something you can see on CT as well? Uh, yes, you can. You can see it better on the CT scan. Diverticular perforations don't always cause pneumoperitoneum. Uh, but uh, stage three is uh, on a modified hinge classification. It refers more to the purulent peritoneum. Uh, so it's, it's pus. And stage four is what? Stage four is when you have connection between the perforated segment and the peritoneal cavity. Stage four is feculent peritonitis. So when you have uh, feculent particles within the peritoneal cavity. Uh, the pneumoperitoneum is more of a feature of perforated duodenal uh, ulcers. Uh, yeah. You get a lot more gas uh, from, from there. So stage three is purulent, stage four is feculent. And you can tell that from the CT scan because they have different densities. Um, but uh, a lot of the times that distinction is made when you actually go in surgically into the abdomen. So stage... Um, Three and four is usually treated surgically. Sounds good. So this, this uh, hinge classification can be broadly divided into two categories. Anything up to stage two is considered to be uncomplicated uh, diverticulitis. So a small pericolic abscess is considered to be uncomplicated diverticulitis. A large abscess over five centimeters or a pelvic abscess, so this is category two, onwards is going to be complicated diverticulitis. So uncomplicated diverticulitis is usually can be treated in a non-interventional route, okay? And when we talk about non-interventional management, there are a few broad categories we can talk uh, about there as well. So first of all, we can talk about uh, therapeutic uh, modalities. So what is our therapy for uncomplicated diverticulitis, Lauren? So the therapeutic arm is our antibiotic treatment. And this is usually broad spectrum um, and either oral or IV. There's a range of different options and it's very dependent on patient factors and a number of different things. Um, Serge, did you want to say anything about the choice in antibiotics? Yeah, so uh, as uh, in, in this particular case, we're going to be doing an, using an empirical choice of antibiotics. Uh, and we do have a podcast on that uh, as well. So you can, if you want a little bit more detail about how to choose uh, empirical treatment uh, for um, uh, surgical conditions, uh, have a listen to that. Uh, but uh, in general, it's going to be a broad spectrum antibiotic and we have a, a bunch of uh, choices available there depending on all of those factors. Um, if the patient's condition is fairly mild, uh, and uh, they're otherwise well and had, have minimal comorbidities, oral antibiotics and outpatient uh, treatment uh, can be utilized. A uh, certain group of patients can even be treated without antibiotics um, with just gut rest on clear fluid diet, but those patients usually need 
to be admitted into the hospital and observed for a couple of days. If you have, if you have patients that have systemic uh, signs of systemic inflammatory uh, response, patients that uh, um, are immunosuppressed, um, elderly, or have comorbidities, those patients will be admitted and, and will receive intravenous antibiotics. In addition to, in addition to therapeutic uh, arm of our non-operative treatment, we can also talk about things like supportive uh, and preventative uh, treatments. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Lauren? Yeah, and these are really important. So I think the first thing that's definitely worth worth mentioning is that the patient has come in because they're in pain. And so an important part of the supportive therapy is giving them appropriate analgesia just to make Mm. sure that um, it lowers their level of distress and um, takes away that pain a little bit. So that's very important. And analgesia in this particular case uh, is going to be uh, avoiding non-steroidal medications because we know that non-steroidals will exacerbate uh, the condition or may even uh, cause another episode. Uh, So it's going to be Panadol and very judicious use of opioid analgesia. Okay. What else? What else includes fluids, so our IV fluid therapy, so that Mm -hmm. can... Um, either just be purely to replace any deficit that they um, that might be present, but also we have sent already the um, investigations that we talked about in our last podcast, um, particularly looking at the electrolyte panel. And if this comes back deranged, then we can administer certain fluids to try and correct those derangements in the electrolytes. That's right. That's right. And uh, the last but not least, we're going to talk about diet as a supportive treatment. So what what sort of diet are we going to be putting our diverticulitis patients on? It doesn't sound like much fun, but it's a clear fluid diet, aka gut rest. So we're really just trying to make sure that the gut is resting as much as possible and not irritating or aggravating it as to exacerbate any of the pain or any of the underlying pathophysiology. That's correct. And it works pretty well. Uh, and uh, with with the clear fluids, you do uh, receive a little bit of nutrition. There's a, you know, a little bit of sugar in that, uh, you know, some clear proteins and things. Any transit of uh, diet through the gut is a good thing. And nutritional state of the patient is very, very large factor in outcomes of any surgical intervention. Next, we're going to chat just a little bit about preventative arm of our non-operative treatment, which is going to be things like DVT prophylaxis. And also, once the patient is better, we're going to advise them how to reduce the chance of them having another attack. Now, the most important factor in diverticulitis, in, in recurrence of diverticulitis, is having had previous episodes. Up to 80% of patients will just have one attack, but about one in five will have ongoing attacks. And if they've had previous attacks, then it is highly likely that we will, they will have another, but we don't know when and how. And to reduce the incidence of recurrent diverticulitis, we can advise them to follow a high-fiber diet. It's a bit controversial, but uh, it is still recommended. Avoid non-steroidal medications, so things like neurofen. Uh, aspirin is okay in low dose, especially if it's indicated for heart conditions. Um, Also, uh, we should advise them to lose some weight, follow a healthy lifestyle, uh, give up smoking if they're smoking, um, and uh, exercise. Other other factors that can increase the rate of uh, incidence of diverticulitis in that population is immunosuppressing drugs such as steroids. Uh, And lastly, um, keeping in mind that majority of our 
uh, diverticulitis population uh, patients are going to be elderly. Uh, we're going to recommend, recommend them to have a, a what done in the four to, six, four to eight weeks after this episode of diverticulitis? A colonoscopy. That's right. So it's colonoscopy is recommended uh, for the initial episode of diverticulitis uh, if there hasn't been a recent colonoscopy done, so in the, in the last uh, two, three years. Uh, and that is mainly to uh, assess the extent of the disease, but also to make sure there's nothing else sinister going on. All right, so that, this was the non-interventional arm of our treatment. Now we're going to move up to the fun bit, the operative or interventional uh, arm. Uh, and we're going to start with a percutaneous drainage for uh, abscess, for large abscesses or pelvic abscesses. So that's usually done um, either via uh, CT-guided or ultrasound-guided approach, uh, and it is usually quite effective for uh, stages 1b and 2 uh, of our hinge classification. Uh, next up is going to be a laparoscopic uh, uh, drainage of abscess. So those abscesses that are very deep and inaccessible for uh, imaging-guided drainage, or patients that are not responding to antibiotics and drainage, they may then undergo laparoscopic uh, washout of the abscess, and that can be quite effective in a select group of patients. It, it may not be that easy because things can be stuck, and by that time the patient may have spent a couple of weeks in hospital, uh, so it needs to be used very judicious, and the, and the rate of having to convert to a open resection during that procedure uh, can vary from 5 to 20% depending on uh, severity of the disease. Right. Next up is a bit of a controversy. So for stage 3, uh, which is purulent diverticulitis, uh, at some stage we used to advocate laparoscopic lavage, which is basically washing out the abdominal cavity. Um, the data on that is conflicting and at the moment it is no longer recommended. But it is probably because of the way the uh, studies were conducted. And majority of the data is from 15 to 20 years ago where the technology wasn't as good. Our training in laparoscopy wasn't as good. And it may end up um, making a bit of a comeback in the future. Uh, at least that's my gut feeling. But for the time being, uh, purulent peritonitis, which is stage 3 of hinge classification, and feculent peritonitis is treated with a surgical resection. Okay, so do you know what a Hartmann's procedure is, Lauren? I have been told that a Hartmann's procedure involves a sigmoidectomy, aka taking the, part, the sigmoid colon out mm -hmm. and including a stoma uh, replacement, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Hartman's is a sigmoid, as you correctly said, sigmoid resection with a col end colostomy. Okay, so we take everything out from uh, about uh, upper rectum uh, to descending colon. This is where majority of our diverticuli are. This is where the majority of perforations happen. And after you've resected that part of the colon, then you'll need to bring out a stoma. And it's usually made in the left paraambilical or left lower quadrant so that it's easy to access for the patient and easy to manage. Sounds like a pretty complex surgery. 
Uh, it's not actually. It's not. It's not the most complex surgery, and that's because we don't really fix a lot of things there. We resect the disease segment, and mm. we bring out the stoma. The important things to worry about there is the the ureters and the vessels. An open heartment takes about forty five minutes to an hour and a half, depending on uh, on the patient, depending on expertise, uh, and it's usually a really good way of uh, getting this patient out of uh, septic trouble. Because you can imagine, if you've got fecal peritonitis, you're going to be mm. pretty bloody sick. If the patient is, is younger, if they're not too unwell, who, who has reserves, uh, those patients may be considered for an anterior resection, which is also a sigmoidectomy. But what we do instead of bringing out an end colostomy, we, we uh, anastomose, so we re rejoin the descending colon onto the rectum. And then in this particular patients, we'll almost always bring out a diverting loop aliostomy. Now, you, you may ask, what's the difference between having an aliostomy and a colostomy? And why are we going to, why am I talking about this being, you know, a, an alternative method? But a loop aliostomy is much easier to reverse than an end colostomy. And so if you take patients that have ended up having a Hartman's done with an end colostomy, a, a large proportion of those patients, depending on their age and comorbidities as well, but 40 to 50% of them will never be reversed. Whereas a loop aliostomy, once the patient is over their, their perforation, once they're well enough, uh, reversal of aliostomy is much easier procedure and it gets, and it gets reversed in the majority of cases. That is very neat. It is very neat, yes. So to, to, to do that, you really need to choose your patients well and you need to have colorectal expertise. So that's not something that a general surgeon without colorectal expertise will normally attempt, uh, but that can really improve the quality of life of this particular patient if it's done successfully. Obviously, if your anastomosis falls apart and you end up with not one but two stomas, uh, that's not very good, but thankfully it doesn't happen very often. All right, so these are our options uh, on management of emergency diverticulitis. Now, you need to keep in mind that things such as strictures or fistulas do not form part of hinge classification, probably because majority of the times those present uh, in a more sort of elective settings. Uh, and I think we, should, we can talk about so elective surgery for diverticulitis. And in, in elective, in, in elective um, surgery for diverticulitis, the important things are who is going to be offered the surgery and what kind of surgery they're going to be offered. Anytime we talk about surgical intervention, I think about three, again, three very broad umbrella factors. We talk about patient factors, disease factors, and environmental factors. So as far as patient factors go for elective surgery for diverticular disease, uh, things like age, uh, their nutrition state, and their comorbidities. Surgery for diverticular, for diverticular disease can be quite complex because you have ongoing inflammation and a lot of scarring in the abdomen. The major complication rate from elective diverticular surgery is quite significant. So you need to balance that risk versus benefit. So someone who is young has ongoing issues with diverticulitis, uh, with either smoldering or recurrent diverticular or a recent abscess, but they are otherwise young and healthy, may well benefit from a resection 
despite the risk of complications. Okay. So this, this is the patient factor. Now, disease factors, and we mentioned some of them already, things like debilitating frequent attacks. So someone 50 years old and is unable to work because they have an attack every few months. Or sometimes we talk about a smoldering diverticulitis, patients that have ongoing mild symptoms. Um, patients that have had a perforation and they've, re they've recovered from it. Uh, will frequently be offered a resection because the rate of recurrence is quite significantly higher in this particular subgroup. And obviously patients that have either stricture or a fistula, those are usually also offered uh, surgery. And then we're talking about environmental factors, which is availability of expertise. So usually a colorectal surgeon, colorectally trained surgeon, and support available so things like intensive care high dependency you know stoma therapies and, and so on to support the patient through their journey especially if do, they do develop one of the complications of uh, of surgery and as far as the surgical modality of choice is concerned uh, in this case is going to be a sigmoidectomy aka anterior resection and in this subgroup of patients a lot of the times we will resect and then I'll have a join and, and we will keep them in a hospital until that is healed. And uh, that usually works very well in the majority of cases. And I think it's, it's a really nice way of kind of thinking very clearly about the benefit that this, the, an elective surgery can pose versus the risks, but also considering kind of the specific patient factors and um, environmental factors, disease factors. It's a great way of um, stepping out that approach. It's very easy to forget that um, we are treating individual patients and we're not just following a guideline. Patient selection, mm -hmm. expertise and support are all very, very important. So we talked about the hinge classification uh, and we talked about how that influences our decision to go either the non-therapeutic or non-interventional uh, pathway or uh, interventional pathway. And we, talk, and we went through uh, the variety of non-interventional treatments, including therapeutic antibiotics, supportive diet and fluids, uh, preventative and follow-up. And then we talked about our intervention modalities available for complicated diverticulitis or hinge two and above, which is percutaneous drainage, laparoscopic drainage, uh, and then laparoscopic lavage, and then finally Hartman's or in select group of patients anterior resection and stoma. And finally, we talked about surgery for diverticular disease in the elective setting. And we talked about uh, patient factors, disease factors, and env environmental factors. And we talked about the risk versus benefit uh, for, for those patients. I think the listeners will be diverticulitis experts now. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, thanks thanks uh, again for participating in our podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me back. Brilliant. Take care. See you later. Bye. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments, you can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies. <laughs>